Hello, everyone. Welcome to another daily objective. Today, there's no Rack Our Gloria, so I'm the whole, the, the sole host, but we have a guest with us. We have Frank Furedi, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, an author and a very kind of well known and well written public intellectual. And the reason we have Frank today is because he has had a new book out, which is a book about borders. It's called Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. And although this, the title of the book makes it appear as if it's mostly on physical borders, actually the scope of the book is wider. So border is mentioned more as a symbol, uh, as a symbol of commitment, as a symbol of judgment, as a symbol of drawing lines, and as a symbol of saying yes or saying no. And the book is basically discussing this inability or this unwillingness that we have today in the West to draw these lines, to say, for example, what is right and what is wrong, or even draw simple distinctions such as when does someone stop being a child and is now an adult, or is there such a binary distinction between a man or a woman? So, Frank, thank you very much for being with us today. Hi there. So the first question I want to ask is this interesting dichotomy that you examine on the book. So on the one side, there seems to be this uneasiness of drawing the lines and this uneasiness that people have to basically make a commitment. And to quote one of the things that you said in the book that I enjoyed the most is that the most disturbing driver of the problems that you explain in the book is the trend towards the devaluation of moral judgment. But at the same time, we see something very interesting. Apparently, people don't want to make moral judgments, but if you find yourself on the wrong side of what is supposed to be the accepted morality, you're in deep trouble. For example, if, if you cross the boundaries, for example, of cultural appropriation, you are indeed in trouble. So how do you explain this dichotomy that on the one side, we don't want to make an ideological or a moral commitment, but at the same time, if you go away from this orthodoxy, you're in trouble. Well, I think what <clears throat> what's happened is that there are, there's a very powerful sense of estrangement from the kind of symbolic boundaries that have given meaning to life, from you know the distinction between a man and a woman to a child and an adult. We're not even sure anymore where to draw the line between humans and animals or between the private and the public sphere. In other words, we're really scared to make judgments about our life. But at the same time as we're declaring that we celebrate non-judgmentalism, that's the big foundational value of Western society, we forget the fact that human beings cannot breathe or live for any length of time without making distinctions. We all do make distinctions, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it. But what has happened is that the people who are meant to be very non-judgmental are also judgmental, but in a very privatized, arbitrary kind of a way. And one thing that I find is, very, is that the people that criticize President Trump for building a wall on the Mexican-American border want to create their safe space and are busy constructing personal boundaries around, among themselves. So what we're finding today is that unable to 
have a moral or a social sense of what a, a boundary is, people opt for very privatized, atomized kind of boundaries. And that's best summed up by the idea of, of embracing the idea of social distancing during the pandemic, that somehow through social distancing, through creating a quarantine, you are creating a border uh, for yourself, uh, but that you know that is not seen as a border, like a national border or a, or, a, or a boundary between a child and an adult. That seems to be justified on health grounds. Uh, and but of course, what we what we have with social distancing is essentially creating a very personalized space, a personal boundary, which cuts you off from the rest of society. And you make the point in the book that although, as you said, we are in times that we're very uncomfortable with the idea of boundaries, in terms of moral boundaries, like what is right or what is wrong, or for example, we see in the protest people taking down statues, and it's very unusual that you're going you're to find someone saying, no, this is wrong for this and this and this. But at the same time, you have the self-help industry and all that, all these people saying, teaching to people how to create their own boundaries. So basically. We don't even we need guidance even for these very basic things. But the the question is: so who are those people who set, let's say, these 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 philosophical trends that you mentioned in the book? Because we could imagine, for example, that in 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 a totalitarian society, for example, you have every magazine or every book having to be signed off by Zdanov or whatever. So you have a center. Today we see something different. We see a group thing which has no center. We see, for example, that Netflix and Amazon and all universities and everything in all big businesses, in a way they think alike, but the question is who sets the tone for this thinking alike? Because there is no, there is no specific line. There is no like intellectual leader who says, this is the line. It's almost as if, if you want to fight, let's say this group thing or this anti-humanist ideas that you explain in the book, you are at a loss because you don't know where to start from. So in your understanding, is there like a cabal of ideological zealots, as for example, people like Jordan Peterson believe that they're these leftists, these like new Khmer Rouge who have this, 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 this kind of very fanatical views? Or are we fighting basically an empty cell, something which is not even there? Well, I, I deal with this problem in my next book, uh, which basically suggests that uh, these trends gained tremendous power in the 1940s, but uh, amongst a small number of people who were interested in setting up international global organizations to prevent wars from breaking out. And they believed that the solution to the problem of humanity was world government. And the solution was to detach people from their links with their family, their friends, their nation, in other words, to create this kind of abstract individual, that's the way that they saw it. And what happens if, if whenever you have new ideas coming to the fore is that it usually takes about four or five generations to be, into, to be socialized into this kind of belief. And if you look at the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you'll find that many of the uh, accomplishments of what you call this group thing get stronger and stronger. I think. A very good example would be with non-judgmentalism, which you know used to be confined to a small number of social workers and therapists. 
gradually becomes integral to education of children. And by the time you get to the 70s and 80s, it becomes the, it becomes the outlook of a significant number of people in our cultural institutions. But what's very interesting is that at a certain point, these ideals mutate and, and kind of migrate from universities into the private sector and into the public sector as we see today. So what you've got now are a group of political elites who've been brought up on this thing, uh, um, but they don't need to be told what to say and what to do because they have instinctively internalized the idea that there are there is no right and wrong. Uh, they have been uh, also, uh, they, they've also learned that there is no morality that we all have to sign up, up to. And what they've, what they've done, and this is where it's really insidious, is this, they know that, uh, you know, sort of in the real world, we still have to make judgments. But instead of allowing you and I to make our judgments and use our discretion, and allow our autonomous self to be, you know, in the process of making decisions, they've kind of, in the backhanded way, institutionalized process, so that everything gets micromanaged, right? It appears that, you know, we are free and open and, you know, completely non-judgmental, but when you go work in an office, there are rules that literally tell you how to behave when you go to the toilet. There are rules that tell you how to interact with other people. You know, the kind of micromanagement of human beings is far more intrusive than it was in feudal Europe when the churches used to regulate our lives. So in, in that sense, we got the worst of both worlds, neither the capacity to judge, but at the same time, and our discretion being taken away, but at the same time, you know, behind our backs, there are these dense network of processes and rules that do not appear to us as being total or totalitarian, but govern every dimension of our everyday experience. Yeah, and that was a light bulb moment when I was reading the book where you actually say that you would expect that actually when you engage on a moral argument with someone, you say, I disagree with you. Basically, it's an invitation to, to, to connect, basically. So you take them seriously as an agent. But when you say, oh, if you disagree with me, it's an attack on my whiteness or my Greekness or whatever, it's basically immediately we sat down each other. So these people usually say that, oh, it's like capitalism is alienating or whatever, but actually this microprocessing where you describe is the thing that is alienating. Now, I want to push you though in one or two issues where I find us myself disagreeing a bit uh, with you. So you say at some point that borders are morally relevant because there are some legitimate moral differences between people who live on the one side or the other side of the border. And then you say that claiming otherwise would mean that we reduce people to the most abstract kind of individual qualities. But my question to you is, wouldn't the, univer wouldn't the universal message be, as opposed, as opposed to the cosmopolitan message where there basically is no message, but isn't the proper universal message that there is actually one correct and true and right morality. So whether you're on this part of the border or that part of the border, your moral compass should be irrespective of your identity. So I, don't, I want you to clarify a bit what you mean 
that you could find two sides of the border with two different, let's say, moral system. Isn't morality at the end of the day, shouldn't it be a universal kind of aspiration to achieve the right, the true morality? Yeah, I mean, I actually say in the book that morality is a universal accomplishment. But along the uh, universal moral sensibility of us being all humans, there's also the particularity of the way that we live our moral life. And when I talk about morality and borders, what I'm really getting at is that the borders that have, have been set up are morally relevant to the people that live there. So the community where I live uh, has a moral relevance for me that it couldn't possibly have for you because it's not organic to your experience. And just as the Nikos family has got certain uh, sensibilities that come out of their experience uh, as a, as a, of different family members, which are unique to you. So other people have similar experience. And this particularity is quite important, but because that's the way that we experience moral and public life. So to me, the challenge is to uphold universal moral law. For example, the Kantian idea that human beings are end, ends in and of themselves and that human beings have a capacity for exercising their individual autonomy. I mean, all those things are really, really crucial, whilst at the same time recognizing that our moral life doesn't exist up in the air. It's not an abstract, it's, it makes sense to us through the way I engage with people around me. And, and that's really what I'm really referring to. Because if we forget this, then we end up with this very totalitarian, totalitarian sensibility that we're all humans, you know, we're all citizens of the world. We're all detached from, you know, what makes us who we are and in, instead encourages us to be almost sub, become the subjects of a totalitarian kind of global power over which we have no control rather than the moral uh, relationship that we have with other people within the boundaries that we live. So you describe in, in the book, you describe basically cosmopolitanism as in a way different kind of tribalism. And we, we saw this very well on the Brexit discussion where we saw a lot of groupthink, we saw a lot of basically remainder, the remainder becoming an identity and a quite, in, quite often an intolerant one. Now the question is, how do we fight this parochial tribalism of, uh, of, of, of basically the emptiness of cosmopolitanism? And again, the way you use it in the book, because cosmopolitan could also have, as you say, used to have kind of a, a good connotation. But how do we fight this without retreating to a different kind of parochial tribalism, like the parochial tribalism of, of, of let's say, the, the perceptual level that, of identity politics, for example. So how do we, so someone could say, yeah, okay, I don't feel Greek anymore, but I am a, a, a woman and also my sexual identity. So now I'll retreat these smaller identities. So how do we fight one tribalism without retreating to another sense of tribalism that will also negate our agency and our kind of, uh, the idea of being sovereign individuals that we can go out and save the world and save history? Well, I think the key uh, way to attack the current attempt to fossilize identity and to reduce everything to particularity is to make the point that you, Nikos, the, you know, the least interesting thing about Nikos is that you're Greek, right? <laughs> right? The least interesting thing about you is that you got a beard or, or that you got certain physical features. 
because these are accomplishments not of your own making. It's got nothing to do with you in terms of the way you've managed and engaged with, with the world and the way you humanize yourself. And I make the point in the book that, you know, human beings are born twice. They're born biologically and then they, they, are re, they are kind of humanized in the way that they make their way in the world. And I think that if we can get people to understand that, uh, you know, we need to judge one another in relation to what we do, what we create, what we've accomplished in the external world, rather than to think about things over which we have no control, about, you know, which is just simply a, a natural aspect of our, of our very existence. So that, if we can begin to do that, then what we can do is both recognize uh, elements of our culture which are unique, you know, which, you know, which, is, which are fine, perfectly all right, and the fact that as human beings, we're always striving to go beyond. We're trying to transcend that. And one of the wonderful things um, that emerged in the, in the Enlightenment was that it gave us the resources to have, have universalistic aspirations that were based upon very genuine, a very genuine understanding that this is the way that people's thinking and thought processes can gain strength and, and kind of move forward. And, and the, what the book is really all about is uh, offering an alternative to this kind of uh, uh, what you call provincial cosmopolitanism, because it is very provincial cosmopolitanism by opening the door to a more general vision of the world that allows a, a different kind of balance to be established. I found very interesting what you said that in a way, the least interesting thing about someone is where he comes from. But at the same time, my Greekness initially was like the vessel in which I understood morality. So, for example, my grandmother would read me stories from the Greek Revolution, and that's how you get ideas of right versus wrong, heroic endeavors, and all that stuff. And the last point is I found very, very interesting something that you mentioned twice in the book, that actually the best protection and the most welcoming environment for someone who is a, an, an, an aspiring immigrant or a refugee would not actually be this empty kind of believing nothing society, but actually, as you say, it's, it would be a nation state where, which has an identity. And what came to my mind was the idea of the melting pot in the United States, which the way I understand it, the, way, the reason it worked is that because United States has some sort of philosophy, some sort of identity as a society, that this is the place where you come, you respect each other, and if you work hard, irrespective of who you are, you're going to succeed. And that's why we saw a successful integration. So could we say that something like that is needed today? That, for example, if you want a place to be truly cosmopolitan, first it needs to decide what it stands for itself. Is this a good understanding of what you're trying to say? Yeah, and, and I think there's also another element, which is that by taking our society and its values seriously, and by being confident about it, therefore being open to discussing and debating it. What we're also saying is that we can construct that society together. So if you come from Greece into Britain, or if you come from another country, you know, we welcome you as long as you sign up to the kind of discussions we have about clarifying what we're about. And you sign up to the values that are part of our existence. And I think in that way, we're not just simply melting together into this spot, but we're also creating an entirely new brew because it, it's, a, it, it's a product of our own making. So for me, that's a very creative way rather than 
today where we are scared to argue for assimilation, which we kind of have this stupid idea of multiculturalism, and we just end up in parallel worlds with no possibility of debating, dialoguing, or actually learning from each other's experience. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if you don't take the moral judgment to say this is good and this is bad, you can create something. Therefore, as you said, not only we have parallel worlds, but these are static worlds or worlds that were basically the only thing we can do is distract, destroy. That's why in the book you use quite often the term deconstruct as this kind of passive. It's basically the opposite of achievement, which is also a bit like the way I understand cancel culture. I cannot create... Therefore, it's basically, I'm going to gossip, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to take something out from the achievements of others. Anyway, we've already gone out of time. Thank you so much, Frank. I encourage people to read the book. And it's, it's one of these books that captures what is happening out there. So it was written before all this crisis. It was written before COVID. But I think if you read it, you will understand a lot of the things that have been happening in the last weeks. And of course, you can also read previous books from Frank, like Therapy Culture or The Culture of Fear. And you can understand a lot of the things that are happening nowadays out there. So tomorrow, there's there's a show, no Nikos tomorrow. Tomorrow is Gloria and Raka with a guest, Johan Norberg. And they, dis they discuss all this idea that Sweden, is it a socialist state? Is it kind of, does it affirm socialism? Does it affirm free market? What's the situation with Sweden? Anyway, from me and once more, many thanks to Frank, many thanks Thank to you. our viewers and see you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.